I'm Dave Price. I'm Sarah Lerner, and this is the Teachers Unified Podcast. On tonight's episode, we're going to hear Sarah's story about being a school shooting survivor. Okay, well, I guess, Sarah, the obvious question <laughs> is how did you get involved in this you know, critical American issue of guns and violence and communities? So I guess asking, what was the start of your involvement? How did it come to pass? Um, it would have to be when we had the shooting at my school. Like prior to that, I've never been a gun person. I grew up in upstate New York, but I've never been a hunter. Like it's always not been a thing for me. Um, but what really like threw me into the movement was, um, the shooting that took place at my school on February 14th, 2018. Um, that day, it was a Wednesday and I was giving a quiz to my English seniors and we had joked that I was ruining Valentine's Day by giving them a quiz. So at, we were reading 1984 and I gave them a quiz on like the first book, like the first third of the book. Um, and as they were taking their quiz, I was putting Hershey kisses on their desks to kind of like soften the blow a little. So I wasn't a total monster. And we had a scheduled fire drill for second period that morning. And then while they were working, um, I was working on some yearbook spreads because mid February, I'm like three weeks out from our final deadline. So they were working, I was working, and then suddenly the fire alarm went off again and they looked at me and I looked at them and I just kind of shrugged my shoulders and I'm like, I don't know what's going on. Let's go. So I grabbed my phone and my classroom keys and I got everybody out and we were on the second floor of building six, kind of like caddy corner to building 12. And I got downstairs and that's when I heard what sounded like firecrackers and I saw people running and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to go. Um, your first instinct is to just run home, like go home. So I ran back upstairs to my classroom and I had five students from my class with me and then I saw other students coming up the stairs by my room and, you know, I asked whose class they were in and they were in the teacher or with the teacher next door to me, but she wasn't back in the room. She had gone elsewhere, which I found out later and they didn't know where she was. So I ushered them in. I got everybody in, locked the door and we sat in my room until the SWAT team let us out. Like, three, two and a half, three hours later. So 
when I got back upstairs to the room, I remember being incredibly out of breath, like my heart was racing. And it wasn't because I was nervous. It's because, because I'm overweight and I had just run up the stairs. But like I was trying to calm myself down because I didn't want the kids to be nervous that I'm like breathing so heavy and like outwardly I look like I'm nervous. Um, and I remember thinking at some point how how calm I felt, like uncomfortably calm. But I also didn't know, and this is going to sound so ridiculous, but I didn't really know what was going on throughout the whole thing, because obviously there were no announcements being made. There was no communication coming to us from school administration because of what they were dealing with. So every piece of information that I got came from the outside. My laptop and my desktop computer were both on my desk, which was on the other side of the room, and I couldn't go to get them. My ch my phone charger was over there too, so I only had whatever battery was left on my phone, so I was trying to conserve battery. Um, at 2.27, and I remember very fuzzy things, but then also very clear things. So at 2.27, I remember texting in a group chat I had with um, three other English teachers. And I just said like, what the hell is going on? And one of the teachers who was on the third floor of the freshman building said that she, she had been shot. And I just like, in my head, I'm screaming like, what? But you can't say anything because it's a code red drill or a code red, which I didn't even hear them call code red because I was outside when they did it and there were no speakers outside. So I didn't even know that we were under a code red. So she said she had been shot. And at that point, I sent a text to my mom and my husband that there's an active shooter on campus. I'm okay, I'm not shot, I'm safe in my classroom. At some point shortly after that, my son who was in sixth grade at the middle school next door, he sent me a text that he's on lockdown and he's scared and you know, mommy, what's going on? So then I told him and he had just turned 12 a month before. So I told him that there's an active shooter at my school I'm okay. I'm not shot. You need to listen to whatever your teacher tells you to do. And if she tells you to get off your phone, get off your phone. Just listen to everything she says. So he and I were communicating throughout the time that we were both on lockdown. Um, like at some point after that, I put out on Facebook that there's an active shooter at my school. And then like everybody started flooding my phone. Like anyone who's ever had my phone number, Dave, I didn't even know you then. I'm surprised you didn't call me. Like anyone who's ever had my number, like texted me. Students I had 10 years before that were texting me. You know, am I okay? What's going on? Here's what is happening on the news. Is this true? I'm like, you are getting more information than I am. Um, and 
I found out at 341 from my photo rep um, that he had been apprehended. And then at that point, I guess I was thinking that I would be released soon because they had him in custody. And I'm waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally, around five o'clock, the, or no, 530, um, eight very large armed SWAT members came in with these gigantic guns and they let themselves into my classroom and I had to identify myself as the teacher because I look like I'm 12. And then I had to open up the closets in my room so that they could see, you know, there were no hostages, like everyone is okay. And we got up and the kids grabbed their belongings and I asked if I could go to my desk and get my things because I didn't want to just leave everything there. So I grabbed my laptop and my car keys and I put all that stuff in my backpack. I grabbed my lunchbox of all things. I left my date book and my makeup bag on my desk and then I never turned off my desktop computer. So we left the room. The kids were instructed to drop their backpacks and we made our way downstairs. And the closest way to get off campus would have been to walk past the 1200 building, which obviously we couldn't do. So they took us another way and then we were um, on the sidewalk, like on the outside of the, the fence of uh, like the school grounds. And we walked to the opposite corner and we just waited. And it was kids and parents and community people, like everybody was standing out there. And they got you know, the students and the teachers on buses, school buses, and they took us over to um, a hotel uh, about a quarter mile from school. And then we were in like another holding pattern while they got set up to um, interview us, you know, state, local, federal law enforcement were there to interview us to you know, I guess to see where we were, what we saw, what we heard, if we were injured, you know, anything like that. Um, I, I wasn't injured. I wasn't in the building. So I didn't see or hear anything. Um, so since my interview was so short, I was released and I went outside um, and I met up with my husband and my son and I don't even know how my son got to the hotel. He must have walked with some friends. Um, but he and my husband had met up before I saw them. And he, my son ran up to me and hugged me like he hadn't seen me in years and was crying. And mommy, I was so scared and all of that. And I'm you know, hugging him and kissing him and telling him he's okay and I'm okay and we're going to be okay. And, 
you know, when I, when he let me go, I hugged and kissed my husband and I just, I stood there and I kind of didn't know where to go or what to do because my car was still at school. I didn't really feel like walking back with my husband because he parked as close as he could, but it was still like a mile or so away. Um, And as I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, I saw one of my students who was trying to get a hold of her mom. And she was in my fourth period English class. She was in the room with me the whole time. And I walked up to her and I, you know, I asked her if she was okay. And she's like, I can't get a hold of my mom. So I said, you know, come with me. There's, we were going to go to Moe's, which is in the shopping center, like near the hotel. And I'm like, just walk over with me. If you can get a hold of mom, have her pick you up there. If not, you'll eat dinner with us. Like, I'm not going to leave you standing here by yourself. So she and I walked and my husband and son went to go get his car. And once we got to Moe's, the student's mom was there and she got out of the car and, you know, hugged her daughter and all of that. But then she came over to me and hugged me and thanked me so much for being so heroic and keeping her daughter safe. And I didn't know how to respond because I didn't feel that what I did was heroic. And I told her, you know, I was just doing my job. I care about your daughter. I'm glad she's okay. I probably said something else. I don't remember. And then I went into Moe's and, you know, like when you go into Moe's and they've got the TVs on everywhere and it's usually sports playing and, you know, like nonsense background noise, but every single TV had on CNN. And I was watching it the way that you would watch news coverage happening anywhere else in the country. And I was watching it and it was so bizarre because it was my school. And I was literally just there like an hour and a half ago. And it's less than a quarter mile from where I am right now, but I'm watching my school the way, like as if it was another part of the country. And I went through the line and I'm a vegetarian. I'm pretty sure I ordered a veggie burrito. Um, You know, I just like made it through the line. I sat down and my husband and son were there. And I'm just sitting, staring at the TV with my food in front of me. And I look down at my watch and I realize it's 730. And my mom had taken my daughter to dance. Um, My mom had taken my daughter to dance and I didn't realize what time it was and that she needed to get picked up. Um, So I called my mom, it was like 7.30 and I asked her if she would go to get my daughter. And she's like, yeah, when is she done with dance? And I'm like, five minutes ago. So my mom went to pick her up. And at some point, we left Moe's and went to my parents' house. And let me back up a little bit. While I was in my room, um, 
I had sent a text to one of the dance moms or the moms who work at the desk at the dance studio because I didn't want Hannah to find out what was going on at my school from them. And I, she was in third grade and I didn't want her to be nervous that something had happened to me. So when I got to my parents' house, you know, I explained to Hannah what happened. My parents had the news on and she's like, oh, that's why everybody was shushing when I walked by. And I said, yeah, I didn't want them to tell you. I didn't want you to think something had happened to mommy. So must have been around nine o'clock. And my aunt called, my mom's sister, and I was talking to her. And she started laughing. And I could not imagine that I had said anything funny. And I'm like, Jenny, what are you laughing at? She's like, you literally just said the same thing three times. And I didn't, I still don't know what I said, but whatever it was, I must have sounded like a broken record and just said it, said it, said it. And at the time, I, it didn't even cross my mind. I mean, clearly I was in shock and, you know, traumatized. But when you're, I don't know, three and a half, four hours outside of being released from your classroom, like I wasn't even thinking clearly. And I came home and I went to bed. And the next morning at about six o'clock or so, I went with a teacher friend and we did what felt like a marathon of press and interviews. I'm pretty sure the district had like sent out this thing, like don't talk to the press, but whatever. I'm Sarah Lerner and I do what I want. And I'm a journalism teacher and I'm a journalist. Of course, I'm going to talk to the press. Who better to tell our story and who better to speak out than us? So my friend, Melissa, who's the newspaper advisor, she and I did this like press junket all day. And at 2.30, they had a vigil at Pine Trails Park, which is about a mile from school in the other direction. And like the whole community, students and staff, like everybody were uh, was meeting up there. So Melissa and I uh, stopped our world tour of press and went to Pine Trails. And that was where I saw my students from the day before and students who I had, you know, on the opposite day who I saw last on Tuesday and coworkers and it was very heavy. I don't remember much. I do remember one student on um, Jonathan who was in my English class who when we got outside, he ran and he never made it back up with me. But he had asked me if he could plug in his cell phone while he was taking his test. And because he never made it back up to me, he had left his phone and his charger in my classroom. And he was this like big stoic kid in JROTC. And I had given him like my emergency folder that we have to take when we leave the classroom for fire drills and other things. And when he saw me at Pine Trails, he came over and gave me the biggest 
hug and he started crying. And he's like, Mrs. Lerner, I'm so glad that you're safe. I didn't know what happened to you. I didn't know where to go. I just ran. I have your emergency folder and I'm so sorry. And I'm like, oh, Jonathan, honey, it's fine. I said, your cell phone's in my classroom. So, you know, we we laughed a little bit, but he was just so worried about me and that he had my folder. And because I had his phone, he had no way to like reach out to me or anything. And I saw my yearbook students and... I mean, there's just so much that went on at that vigil. Um, and I know there are parts of the day itself that I'm forgetting. Um, beyond that, we were out of school for two weeks. Um, so the Friday after, so that would have been the 16th, um, I went to the funeral for Meadow Pollock, who I had when she was a freshman. Then after that, we had a faculty meeting um, where we all, well, it wasn't mandatory, but we all met up um, for anyone who wanted to and was able to. And then we were out of school for two weeks and I cannot tell you exactly what I did on what day because I truly don't remember. Um, it kind of felt like, you know, the week between Christmas and New Year's where you have no idea what day it is and you're just like full of cheese and every day feels like a Sunday. Like that's how it felt to me. Like I just had no concept of time. Um, I know on Sunday the 18th, I went to Jamie Guttenberg's funeral. She was a freshman in my journalism class. Um, I did not attend any of the other funerals. I just, I just couldn't. And I felt terrible, especially for my coworkers and the other students I knew, but I just couldn't bring myself to do it. Um, and then we went back on Friday, which I guess would have been the 23rd. Um, there was a, a welcome back breakfast that was optional. And after that, um, you could go to your classroom if you wanted to, as long as you weren't one of the teachers from the building. So I wanted to go up to my room because I had left my makeup bag. I had to go buy makeup so that I could look like a human being when I attended these funerals. And I wanted to go like get my stuff, whatever I had left in my classroom. And I walk into my room and it looked as if yearbook had left a room a mess on Friday. And now I'm here on Monday mad at them for leaving my room so messy. Like the laptop cart was open. There were papers all over the place, which were the quizzes my kids were taking. Like it just didn't look like a clean classroom. And one of my students had given me a carnation and that was still on the front table. Um, my computer was still on. That spread that I was working on when the fire alarm went off, it was still up. I don't know what part of me thought that the police officers would have turned off my computer, but I guess I figured they would turn off my computer and they didn't. Um, and I was in the room for like five minutes and I started to have like a genuine panic attack. 
And my brother at the time was getting his PhD in psychology, well, sports psychology, but still psychology. And he had come down from Missouri because he knew I needed him. And he, I called him and like, I wasn't breathing properly. Like I was just full blown panic attack. And he just paused and he's like, Sarah, do you have to be in your classroom right now? And like, no, I don't. He's like, then leave. There, if there's no reason for you to be there, you've done more than what you needed to do. Just go. And I did. Like, I just could not be in that room anymore. And I left. And then that Sunday, we had like a reunification open house type thing where the students could come and get their backpacks that they had left at school. And so many of us were being moved to other classrooms to accommodate the teachers from the building. And um, I was in my classroom and student, my students came through and we hugged and we cried. And the students who I had in the room with me that during those hours like they came in with their parents to thank me for keeping them safe. And, you know, it's, it's an awkward thing because your job as a teacher is to keep the kids safe, but you never think it'll be from something like this. So, you know, it was, it was a very heavy, very emotional day. The remainder of that school year was ridiculous. Um, we had therapy dogs on campus, which was great. We had lots of district personnel, which was not great. Um, I did literally no teaching for the remainder of the year because, you know, in my English classes, how could I finish 1984? How could I teach Macbeth? Everybody dies. You know, it's like, what am I going to do? And these kids were traumatized and had no interest in learning. My journalism classes were mostly, or are always mostly freshmen. And so many of them were in the building. So how are they going to sit and listen to me talk about news writing? Like, honestly. Meanwhile, I had to finish the yearbook. So while we were out, I was concerned that, like, what if nobody else buys a book? You know, how am I supposed to cover what happened and what are we going to do? And I'm not even joking. I checked my email a couple of days after and somebody had bought a yearbook like the day after the shooting. And I'm like, all right, well, shit, we're making a yearbook, kids. So... We decided how we wanted to cover things and what we wanted to do. And I spent the next six weeks, once we got back to school, only working on the yearbook for 12 hours a day because we had to get this book finished. And because of what happened, things had to get moved and shifted and new stuff had to be added. So what was slated to be a 429 page book, which is gigantic in and of itself, ended up being 452 pages. And 
like when I stop and think about it now, like I don't, I genuinely don't know how I finished that book or my students finished that book, but we had to, and we owed it to ourselves and we owed it to the student body to finish it because a yearbook is, it's a history book and we needed to do right by everybody and finish that book. And if you talk to any yearbook advisor anywhere ever, they will tell you hands down, they hate the book that they are currently working on. Like if I never look at this book again, that will be fine. I never felt that way about the 2018 book and I still don't. I love that book. It's a great book. Um, and then, what else? At some point before school was over for the year, um, Melissa, the friend I did the press with, she's the newspaper advisor, and I got moved into her classroom when we came back after the two weeks. So we called our room like headquarters because um, she was newspaper and I was yearbook. And we collaborated with Randy Weingarten and AFT on a student gun violence summit that would take place in October of 2018. So we worked on that over the summer. I worked on a book through Random House Publishing called Parkland Speaks that was a collection of artwork, photography, poetry, prose, essays, all of that from students and teachers at my school. So I edited the entire book and I contributed two pieces myself. Um, I did the Gun Violence Summit in October of 18 and then the book came out in January of 19. And since then I have been working very hard using the platform I have on social media to speak out about gun violence and gun reform, not just because I was involved in a school shooting, but because I want to make the world a better, safer place for my children and my grandchildren. And I want people to be able to go to school, go to church or synagogue, you know, live in their communities without fear of gun violence. So I've done a lot of press. I've written a lot of pieces. I have said yes to every single interview that has been requested of me, not because I want fame and I want people to know who I am, but it's because we need to stay in the conversation. We shouldn't just be another school on this long list of gun violence. Like we need to make the change, which I know the students from my school have done, but now they're all, you know, gone, they've graduated, but those of us who are still teaching there, we're still there and we do this every day. And it's important to not let people forget, not just what happened at my school, but that things like this happen every day, all the time. And that's why I'm so outspoken and that's why I do what I do.
that makes sense. Uh, Sarah, you know, obviously you could hear the emotion in your voice. So I think on behalf of everyone listening, I want to thank you for, for giving that uh, account. Um, of course, any human being would hope that you wouldn't have to ever do that. But unfortunately, life uh, presented a circumstance where you did. And I had to laugh at the one point where you said, I'm a Sarah Lerner and I do what I want. And that's it's the true. Sarah, and that's the Sarah that I met um, a couple years ago and have uh, enjoyed working with on various things. But uh, Sarah, um, I know you're excited and uh, as you should be, you and uh, two of your colleagues that you met through these type of circumstances, Abby Clements and uh, Sari Beth Rosenberg have just united to start a Teachers United group uh, to deal with this issue. And again, I want to reiterate, uh, as someone who spent a long time in the classroom, uh, also as a, a long time as a reporter and a long time as an observer, and you mentioned about your children and grandchildren, and now uh, both with children and, and grandchildren. Um, I don't want to make light of the subject, but I have to say this. I hope that your group disbands in two and a half weeks, because if you accomplish <laughs> what I think you want to do, there won't be a need for it. And there, you know, we all sometimes get involved in that project. But uh, I think I can speak uh, for everyone uh, that feels as I do, and as you and Abby and Sari Beth do, about this idea that some things just should not be, and some things should be. And it should not be that my grandchildren felt safe in Australia for two years, returned to the United States, and had to face directly uh, the idea, the threat, uh, the real possibility of gun violence. It's in every community. Uh, it's lurking around. You said, as uh, so many of us have said, you never thought it could happen here. None of us do, and then it does. So what I'd like you to do is uh, explain to our audience, and I, that's kind of, I just said, to our audience, I mean, it really is our audience because we were involved in this podcast <laughs> together, but the idea of this program, and uh, I'm gonna let you, I've done enough talking, so I'm going to let you talk about it, and you can explain uh, how it came together and a little bit about it. Sure. All yours, Sarah. Okay. So Abby, Sari, and I were in a group chat, just, you know, being adult ladies, and Abby had an idea to create a gun violence prevention group that focused solely on teachers and school-based personnel because there are so many groups out there who are doing such good work. But when the conversation of gun violence comes up, teachers are often left out of the conversation. And we are the ones who you know, experience it with the kids. We are the ones who listen to those stories about family fire and domestic violence and gun violence as a result of suicide and things that go on in black and brown communities and all of that. And we, we as teachers don't have a voice in the conversations that are being had. So the three of us put our teacher brains together and we came up with 
teachers unify to end gun violence. And the our social media handle is just at teachers unify. Um, but we want to be in the conversation. We want to be at the front of the movement to represent and give voice to the teachers, the paraprofessionals, clerical, administration, retired teachers, substitute teachers, like anyone who has a hand with children at school. Because, you know, yes, we're on the front lines when it's a school shooting, but not all gun violence is school shootings. But we, again, are the ones who listen to these stories and pick up the pieces and all of that. And we need to have a seat at the table. So we started um, with our social media accounts first, and we wrote a press release, and we created a survey for people to get involved. And we have done some interviews and some press about the organization and we've really started to get some traction within the education community but also within the gun violence prevention community and it means so much that people have been so supportive and have jumped on it so quickly because clearly this was an area that was lacking and I do hope that we don't exist in two and a half weeks, but I'm pretty sure we will. And that's okay because Abby is a survivor from Sandy Hook. I am a survivor from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Sari Beth, thankfully, is not a survivor of school gun violence or gun violence at all, but she teaches in New York City and has students who have and, you know, has been teaching for 20 years like I have and has heard those stories too. So between the three of us, we have over 70 years of teaching experience and we we know what is working and we know what is not and most of it is not. And we want to make a change. Well, Sarah, uh, thank you for describing the, the group and knowing you and knowing your uh, cohorts there, Abby and Sari Beth. I think if dedication and intelligence and hard work uh, can bring about a change, uh, that's a good trio to have. And I'm honored just to be uh, working as a podcaster with you. You and I have talked about this podcast for a long time, and now it's going to come to fruition through this group. Um, Whenever I hear you or others talk, I mean, there's it's, it's such a series of feelings that go through. I mean, there's the moments that it happened, and then there's the moments after it happened, and then there's the period, maybe it's a very short time, when it happens again, and then it happens again, and then it happens again. And uh, I have to make a comment here. I believe that what we're not doing in America, which is in some way doing something to regulate and stop 
the gun insanity is just that. It's insane. So it's hard for me sometimes, <laughs> years as a journalist, I try to remain objective, but in this, I don't really want to be objective um, in that sense. And I haven't been through what you've been through. I've had it in the community. I've had it as a reporter, um, you know, but I've never been in that school situation that you and Abby were in. So it's been a couple years now, but the situation has go away. And uh, I don't know, I'm not gonna put words in your mouth, but I would assume uh, you haven't, <laughs> you might've become the change you wanna be, but you haven't seen the change in America that it must make. So basically I know you as an optimistic person, uh, but late at night or sometime after you've put your children to bed and the lesson plans are done in that two minutes you actually have to yourself, uh, you, you look at America's situation and, you know, maybe you watched the news that night or maybe you didn't, but invariably something came up about guns and violence in America. So going into this project that you've started, uh, personal, professional, however you want to do it, what are your f biggest fears? Um, I mean, that's a strong word. Uh, so if you'd rather prefer concerns, but somewhere on that on that spectrum from concerns to fears, what bothers you most? about where we are today in America with guns and violence? Um, I am bothered by the fact that this generation is one that only has existed in a world of school shootings. Like when Columbine happened, I was 19 and I was a freshman in college. When Sandy Hook happened, I was already teaching and my son was in first grade like those kids. And I live three hours from Pulse. And like all of those things weren't directly connected to me, but I felt them because of where I was in my life. And I hate that all of the students I've taught my whole career have existed in a world of school shootings because I started teaching in 2002. So it was after Columbine and this is what they know. And I hate having to do the code red drills because yes, we need to do them. And I understand why they happen However, it's like ripping the Band-Aid off every single time. And it's very triggering. And it's there are teachers at my school, and I'm sure there are teachers at other schools who've been through something like this, that it really can set you off. And you are not OK, even though you tell yourself, this is just a drill, it's just a drill. It doesn't matter. And I, I fear that we are sending children out into the world, into an unsafe world, you know, where they have to constantly look for where the exits are and be mindful of, you know, am I sitting with my back in front of a large window or you know, how am I going to get out of here if I feel unsafe? And 
yes, safety is important and all of those things, but we are, because the adults who came before me weren't able to put these things in place, it affects how I teach and it affects this generation of kids, I'm old enough to be their parent. And I fear for where we are headed as a country, outside of school shootings, just gun violence in general, if we don't take care of this now and make a change. No one should be able to go to a gun show, purchase an AR-15, a weapon of war, and not have a background check and not have, you know, whatever other screenings and licenses are required. And they can just go to a school or a community or a synagogue and shoot up the place. You know, like children shouldn't have access to weapons in their home. And it's these things that make me afraid, but I'm not afraid like I'm scared and like I'm constantly living in fear. I'm afraid for where we as a country are headed because you mentioned your grandkids in Australia and they didn't have this problem. And there are every like countries, every other country in the world doesn't have this problem. It's an American problem and that is a problem because it is completely doable and completely fixable. We as a country, not myself, of course, but we as a country don't want to work to fix it because so many lawmakers are in bed with the gun lobby and the NRA and they can't get their heads out of their asses and they don't want to do things to upset them and upset their sources of funding. So we're just not gonna do anything. And we'll give our thoughts and prayers. Okay, well, you can take your thoughts and prayers and shove them very far up your ass because thoughts and prayers don't make me sleep well at night. Thoughts and prayers don't bring people back. They don't fix the injured. They don't put families back together. Change in action, policy and change. Those things do. So I don't need your thoughts and prayers. I need you to do something. And that, that is my fear that we are, we are a loud movement, but we are not loud enough that things are actually going to happen. But at the same time, I don't know that that's necessarily true because I think we are loud enough. I think the lawmakers just need to open up their ears and hear us. Well, Sarah, as I was listening to you, I, uh, that's one of my least favorite phrases in terms of any tragedy, and this is one of the great American tragedies, thoughts and prayers, because as you so forcefully said, thoughts and prayers don't mean a thing without action, and it seems to be that uh, either uh, we don't have the moral courage uh, to do what needs to be done, 
is clearly obvious to that. But I do have a, a word of warning to any legislator out there or any gun manufacturer out there or any gun zealot out there who uh, says, uh, you know, uh, something like Charlton Heston once said, you know, uh, you know, they can have my gun when you pry it from my cold, dead hands. Well, I think with uh, Sarah knowing you, and I know you <laughs> well, Abby and Sari Beth, uh, if you're a person who believes we're fine with guns, I think, uh, I think you won't be alone. It'll be hundreds, hopefully thousands, maybe more. But I really wouldn't want to face you three if I were on the <laughs> other side. So I, I, I uh, you know, if you're if you're a betting person, I'm not. Um, and I know it's uh, it looks bleak and gloomy from time to time in this. But I might even put a couple of dollars down in Vegas on uh, Teachers Unified. So I don't know. Listen, of course, the thing is, uh, this is a podcast and you know, people can't see a smile. They might hear us laugh once in a while. But with all the fears, there's also hope. Um, and that's the great duality um, of the human existence. Uh, we come back. Um, and... Uh, I remember in one of the trainings we had about shooters, it's always stayed with me. Uh, the head officer, we actually had a security, head of security, we had a police force where I talked. And uh, after all this training stuff, he said, basically, you can forget all that. He said, when it happens, there's only two human actions. Uh, one is flight, and the other is fight. And uh, you have chosen to fight, and I think what fight does is shows the hope. So if you, you know, will leave on not some Pollyanna idea, you know, Rose Cole, so, but obviously hope is what gets us through these times. So what are your big hopes uh, for, for yourself? No. Uh, you said for your children? Yes. Because I think if everyone was listening to this, this whole podcast and, and every teacher I've ever known who is very good, they really have two families. They really do. Mm -hmm. The one uh, that we call family that gets together on whatever holiday they get together. And then you have your school family. And uh, that involves, uh, you know, depending if you taught as long as I did, I don't know, 3,000 students, maybe more spread out over the years. And so uh, we have to have hopes for them. So as eloquently as you've done ever since I've known you, uh, let's go out with some hopes and what that will inspire us to do. We're not going to give any thoughts and prayers to those hopes, but you are going to inspire all of us through this group to action. The floor is yours. <laughs> okay. So my hope is that people will listen to the podcast and hear the stories that you and I collect and share and see how gun violence impacts people across all walks of life and be inspired to work and make a change. My hope is that the world is a safe place for my children. My daughter is LGBT and I want her to feel safe to be who she is and love who she loves and not live in fear of being 
harmed or killed because of who she is and who she loves. Um, I hope that, no, I don't hope. I know that the kids who are now adults and who will be adults in the 2022 election and the 24 election will come out in droves and vote out these lawmakers who are sitting on their hands or have their hands up their asses and are doing nothing to work to end gun violence. My son will be 16 this month. He will be 18 in time to vote in the 24 election. Like that gives me hope because he and his peers who in our community watched what happened as sixth, seventh and eighth graders will be eligible to vote. And that gives me hope. And I am hopeful that the work that President Biden, Vice President Harris are able to do will bring about the necessary change. And all of the gun violence prevention groups are doing amazing, amazing work and will continue to do so. And I guess my biggest hope is that Teachers Unify continues to grow because there are so many of us who have already been impacted, but I don't want it to grow because more people are impacted in the future. So I hope we don't add more people to the Gun Violence Survivors Club, but I want those who are currently in it to speak out if they're comfortable and be the voice that becomes a collective voice that will bring about the necessary change that we all need to feel safe at home, at school, at our place of worship, in our community, at a red light, in a, you know, out at night by yourself, like wherever you are vulnerable and may feel unsafe, that that isn't a reality anymore. And those are, those are just some of my hopes. Thanks for listening. Tune in every Thursday for a new episode. Please follow us on Twitter at TeachersUnifyPC and online at TeachersUnify.org.